Good morning, Just. It's good to see you. Um, my name's Steve, as Charlie said, and um, I'm married to Tammy, who you've already met, and we have the privilege of helping lead this thing we call Central Vineyard. Central Vineyard is a church that exists in a couple of locations. We planted um, a, a location of our church in Wellingborough three weeks ago. Um, our, our 9.30 service, as a result, is very quiet. So if any of you would like to come to the 9.30 service... Uh, we would encourage you to do that. So um, if you like getting up early, come to the 9.30 and we'll make some space in this service instead. So is that okay? Yeah, good. Some of you are thinking, there's the two 9.30s on a Sunday? Um, there, there definitely is. So um, yeah, if you can choose to make that your service, that'd be great. Um, so we are, um, as a church, now that we've, uh, we've sent like 40, 50 people off to Wellingborough, we are back in gathering mode here in Northampton, and so um, we do want to fill our empty seats. And one of the ways that um, we're just encouraging you to be a little bit more engaged with your friends, your neighbours, your colleagues, and stuff like that is, is through these little tokens that you may have seen on the landing. Uh, they're called Love NN, which is our postcode. NN is our postcode. And uh, we, we put a challenge out a few weeks ago. What does it look like for a whole troop of people uh, to go out into their normal working lives and just demonstrate God's love in practical ways in moments and opportunities that come their way. And so we've had people doing all sorts of things. Lots of people are buying chocolate to give away, which is not a bad thing. Um, but we've had people buying coffees for their teachers and uh, we've had people paying for people's parking in, in the multi-storey car parks and all that, and just, just little tokens of kindness. And, and the idea is, is that when you express that token of kindness, you give them a token and it leads them to a website that tells them a little bit more about Jesus and why you did it. It's like evangelism for wimps, okay? Um, okay, so um, feel free to grab some of those on your way out. Okay, this morning we are stepping back into a year-long campaign uh, that we've been doing called the Year of Biblical Literacy, and um, we have finished in the Old Testament, some of you will be pleased to know, and uh, we're now in the New Testament. If you are up to date with your Bible reading app, you should be starting the Gospel of Luke is that right? I'm looking for Anne Willis because she will be, uh, she will be up today. Um, you should be in the Gospel of Luke, and so um, for this next little while, um, our next series in this campaign, uh, we're calling simply Jesus, and we're just taking a few weeks as we read through the Gospels uh, collectively to think about the character of Jesus uh, and really to explore what he did. And really why it mattered. Um, you know, uh, was Jesus um, simply just a good moral teacher? That's some opinions uh, that people have. Or was he more than that? And so over the next few weeks, we're going to explore some of the different characteristics of who Jesus was. And so this morning over in Wellingborough, uh, Paul Veal uh, was launching this series, but talking about Jesus as a healer. This morning, we're going to do something a little bit different. He'll be back here next week doing that talk, but uh, this morning, we're going to do something a little different. So if you've got a Bible, why don't you turn to Mark uh, chapter 1. Uh, 
And we're going to just um, we're going to flick through some different chapters in the in the book of Mark. You know, Jesus was a lot of things. Most of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus uh, know him as the Son of God, uh, but he was also called things like the Messiah, the Christ. Uh, he's the long-awaited King of Israel, the King of the Jews. Um, but if you was to encounter Jesus in his first-century setting, uh, if you were to find yourself in a synagogue that Jesus uh, showed up in, um, and as you heard him open up the, screech, uh, the scriptures, you would probably consider Jesus to be a rabbi. Um, a rabbi is a Hebrew word meaning teacher. And a, and, and a rabbi would be someone who went from village to village, synagogue to synagogue, um, and um, he, would, he would have this thing called a yoke, which was his interpretation of the scriptures. And he would go around sharing uh, the scriptures uh, in different ways. Uh, rabbis were kind of like the rock stars of, of the day. And, and so Jesus uh, is this young, brilliant um, rabbi. He's this, this wonderful teacher that, that people come across. And in our 20th century, 21st century uh, culture, we don't always think that much about Jesus uh, being a teacher, Yet when we stop and think about Jesus being a teacher, we realize how brilliant he was. He was just this wonderful teacher. And so before we talk about Jesus being a healer, before we talk about Jesus being a savior, uh, before we talk about Jesus being the one who reveals the Father or the one who loves our soul, we're going to talk about Jesus as our teacher, Jesus as our rabbi, and what it means for us to follow him as our teacher. What it means, what are the implications if that is what Jesus is. So Mark 1, we're going to pick up in verse 16, and it says this, um, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net, whoever she is, I don't know, um, casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he'd gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, they called, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Okay, well, if you've got your Bible, flip over to chapter 2, um, verse 13. Once again, Jesus went outside beside the lake. A large crowd come to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And you could say, be my disciple. And, and Levi got up, and he followed Jesus. Okay, turn to chapter 3, verse 13 again. Jesus went up the mountainside and called to him, uh, those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed Simon, 
the, the one who he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave them a name, something or other, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Theodos, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Okay, one last time, turn to Mark chapter 8 and verse 34. Then Jesus called the crowds to him, along with his disciples, and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Now, we could just go on reading passage after passage, particularly in the Gospel of Mark. But as we read Jesus' interaction, and as we think about the call that Jesus makes to his first followers... It's important to hear something Jesus doesn't say as much as what he does say. And you see, one of the things that Jesus doesn't say uh, in this, any of these passages, and if you can find it, you can let me know, but he doesn't say, he doesn't say, hey everyone, if you believe in me, and if you, you know, believe this thing and that thing and this other thing about God... And if you live a vaguely moral life, and if you show up to church every now and then, guess what? You'll get to go to heaven when you die. I, I, I can't find anywhere where that kind of call is made by Jesus. And yet, that's the call that if we're honest, and we've been around church for a while, we've heard lots, lots and lots of times. So Jesus, as teacher, as rabbi, he has a different call. And his call is this, follow me. Follow me. Or another way of putting it, come be my disciple. Now the word disciple um, in Hebrew is Talmudin. And um, there are a number of ways um, that we can translate that. The word uh, disciple is the most common it, uh, it can also be uh, translated as follower um, or student. Um, but when, it, when, it's, when we say follower, we don't mean like someone who follows you on Instagram, okay? We don't mean that. And actually, we don't, when he says student, we don't mean someone who sits in lectures and takes notes, which is what students do, isn't it? I think um, um, it's actually far more than that. It's far more encompassing. In fact, the, the English word that best captures this, this word Talmudine is apprentice. Hands up who is looking forward to the apprentice starting on Wednesday. Am I still the only sad person who watches? Uh, my daughter texted me in the week and said, the apprentice on next Wednesday, um, you're not going to your small group. Um, so, uh, so um, um, yeah, you're looking, I'm looking forward to that. But... Um, <laughs> To be a Talmudine was to be an apprentice, to, to live your entire life under the, the shadow of your teacher, your rabbi. And so just to give us some context, this, this concept of discipleship 
was not invented by Jesus. Do you know that? Jesus didn't invent discipleship. And Jesus wasn't the first rabbi to have disciples. In fact, discipleship didn't even start in Jewish culture. Uh, It's believed that um, it actually started in Greece uh, with the likes of Socrates and Aristotle. Uh, And all that's to say is that in in this first century um, context, discipleship and apprenticeship was just part of the fabric of society. Unfortunately, and particularly if you've been around church, um, a lot of the times when we think about discipleship, we don't put it in its first century context. We, we don't always see discipleship the right way. In fact, the first century idea of discipleship was kind of like the gold standard of the Jewish education system. And there was, um, there was three different levels to the Jewish uh, education system. The first was called Beit Sefer, which is Hebrew uh, for house of the book. And essentially, this was primary school for Jewish kids. Okay? And, uh, and in primary school, in Beit Sefer, um, the, the child's goal was to learn the Torah off by heart. And those of you who don't know what the Torah is, it's the first five books of the Old Testament. And so if you were a Jewish a child, in that cultural context, you would have learned the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through to Deuteronomy. You would have had it memorized by the age of 12. Anybody, anybody struggle remembering <laughs> verses of the Bible? But yeah, um, you would have memorized it. Now, most children, their education stopped there. And so if you were a girl, you were eventually married and you had children And if you were a boy, you ended up going into the family business. But the best of the best, those that made it, went to the next phase. Uh, And the second level of of the education system was Beit Talmud. And Beit Talmud uh, was was a Hebrew for house of learning. Uh, And this was where young men aged 12 to 14 were educated in the synagogue and they learned uh, from the scribes. And the thing that they had to do in this period was memorize the whole of the scriptures. So what we call the Old Testament, uh, they would have it down to memory. And then the best of the best of the best, and we're kind of talking Ivy League, Oxbridge, you know, the upper echelon, they're just the, the best of the best. They would go on to... To, to be an apprentice, to be a Talmudine. And, and, and what would happen is they, they, would, um, they would find a rabbi and, and they would try and convince them to let them become their apprentice. It's a bit like going to Google and saying, let me be an intern. You know, it's that, that kind of thing. Uh, and, and so... Um, uh, they, they would find this rabbi, uh, and they would follow them. And then the rabbi would begin to quiz them a little bit. How do you understand the Torah? How do you uh, read the scriptures? How do you think about this? And after weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks of following, they, they might consider you to be intelligent enough. They might consider you to have enough drive uh, to be one day a rabbi yourself. And if they considered that, they would say something to you like this, come and be my disciple. 
Come, follow me. Come and be my apprentice. Now, let's say that you were good enough. Okay? You were good enough to become an apprentice of a rabbi. If so, you had three goals. You had three things that you had to do. Goal number one was to be with your rabbi. Literally 24-7, you would follow your rabbi wherever he went, from village to village, from synagogue to synagogue. You would spend every moment with your rabbi. There was a, there was a well-known Hebrew blessing that said, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. And it was this idea that as you went from village to village and synagogue to synagogue, you walked that close with your rabbi, the dust of his sandals covered your clothes. So that's the first goal, to be uh, with your rabbi. The second goal was to become like your rabbi. So in contrast to a culture like ours, which is all about being an individual, being distinct, you know, being unique, standing out in the crowd... Back then, the goal as an apprentice was to literally become a carbon copy of your rabbi. Um, you, You would not only follow him around, but you would copy every single move he made. You would imitate his tone of voice, his dress, his mannerisms. Uh, It it kind of sounds weird in this culture. Um, I was saying in the first service, when I was about seven or eight years old... um, I've got a brother who was like eight years older than me. Well, I've got two brothers, but this particular brother, um, I wanted to be like him. And so I managed to convince my mom every time he bought a certain piece of clothing, she bought me the equivalent in miniature size. And, and so he would put on a certain pair of jeans. I would put on a certain pair of jeans. And then he'd get really angry, go and get changed. And then I would get changed. But, um, you know, he just, I just wanted to be like my big brother. I wouldn't want to do that now. He's got terrible dress sense. But... Um, <laughs> Uh, that's what an apprentice did. They imitated the one that they were following. And then the final goal was to do what your rabbi did. That you wouldn't just be content with being like them and imitating them, but actually you would do what they would do. And actually you would become a rabbi. And so why do I say all that? You know, why the history lesson? Why, why, why would we go there? Uh, to be a, an apprentice of Jesus, um, to take Jesus as our rabbi, as our teacher, means that you and I have to do exactly the same thing with Jesus. We have to do the same thing. So this is what it means to be a disciple, apprentice of Jesus. Our first goal is to be with Jesus, to be with him. Now, what does it mean for us to be with Jesus? Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father. We can't physically be with Jesus. And Jesus, you know, when he commissioned his disciples, he said, I'm sending you uh, to go and make disciples and to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he says, surely I'll be with you to when? To the end of the age. And then we get to Acts chapter 2, and um, the Holy Spirit comes. And all through the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is referred to as the Spirit of Jesus. And so how do we get to be with Jesus? 
We get to be with Jesus by living in constant connection and constant state of awareness to the Spirit of God. And so as we read through the scriptures, we see a number of different metaphors of what this looks like. Jesus famously talks about um, the connection to, to him being like vine and branches, that we're called to abide in him. The Apostle Paul um, in the New Testament, he, he talks about this, this thing of being connected to Jesus. He's like praying continuously without ceasing, being people who are ongoingly connected 24-7 to him, communicating with him, living in the power of his presence. In the, in the Catholic tradition, they talk about uh, contemplative uh, prayer, contemplative spirituality. Uh, the medieval mystic, Brother Lawrence, he, he called it practicing the presence of God. If you read a book, read that book, okay? Just this amazing book about this art of practicing God's presence, being in God's presence. The philosopher Dallas Willard, um, he puts it like this. He says, the first and most basic thing we can and must do to keep God before our minds, this is, fundamental, this is the fundamental secret of caring for the soul, is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to him. In the early times of practicing, we may well uh, be challenged by our burdensome habits of dwelling on things less than God. But these habits are not a law of gravity and can be broken. A new grace-filled habit will replace the former ones as we take intentional steps towards keeping God before us. Soon our minds will return to God as the needle of a compass constantly returns to north. If God is the greatest longing of our soul, he will become the pole star in our inward beings. And you see what Dallas Willard is saying here is, is that um, we are called to live a life that's continuously connected to Jesus. This awareness and a connection to him through the Spirit of God on a daily basis. This is what we call spiritual disciplines, or a better word might be spiritual practices, that we do things, different habits that form us. And, you know, some people get really hung up on this idea of practicing spiritual um, habits and practices. Um, they see them as legalistic. Um, but here's the thing, spiritual practices, spiritual disciplines, they're, they're not an end in themselves, you see, the goal of the Christian life is not to become really good at a particular spiritual discipline. That isn't, that isn't the goal. We're not meant to become particularly proficient at a particular spiritual practice. Spiritual practices are a means to another end. Uh, they are a way to orientate our lives around the person of Jesus. They're a way for us to abide in his presence. They're a way for us to be connected to him. So the goal of prayer as a spiritual practice isn't prayer. It's relationship with Jesus. You know, the goal of fasting or the goal of um, silence and solitude isn't just silence and solitude, but it's, it's an opportunity to connect us to Jesus. So that's our first goal, to be with Jesus. Our second goal 
as apprentices as Jesus is to become like Jesus. In the olden days, we called this sanctification. Um, A more kind of current word would be spiritual formation. Again, Dallas Willard says this. He says, spiritual formation in the Christian tradition is a process of increasingly becoming possessed and permeated by the character traits of Jesus as we walk in the easy yoke of discipleship with Jesus, our teacher. And the reality is, all of us are being formed. Um, You know, spiritual formation is not a Christian thing. It's just a human thing. We're not, you know, uh, as, as people... We are constantly being formed by something. And so who you were yesterday is not who you are today. And, and who you are tomorrow will be something different again. And so we, we're continually being formed. And so when you think about that in our, in our kind of cultural context, you could argue that we're always being discipled. We're always being discipled by someone or something. And the question isn't, are you being discipled? Because we are. The question is, who or what are you being discipled by? Because it's contested space. It's a contested space that we are either discipled by Jesus or we're discipled by something else. And we all know that's true, don't we? Because we've all got one of these. (laughs) You know, (laughs) these things are... Our biggest distractions. And so the challenge for us, those of us who follow Jesus, is is that we would be continually formed by him, day after day. And the question is, who are you becoming like? You know, when you think about the trajectory of your life, who am I becoming like? Am I becoming more like Jesus? Or am I becoming more like the culture around me? And you see, to become like Jesus, to live the way of Jesus, takes a lifetime of practice. Now, when some of us here practice, we think, right, I've got to go home this afternoon and try really, really hard to be like Jesus. Have any of us thought that in this moment? I'm just going to go home and I'm going to try harder. I'm going to try to be like Jesus. The reality is it's not about trying, but it's about training. The best um, example I can choose for this is um, the example of exercise. As you can say, I'm, I'm the bastion of that. And, and so, um, But let's just say you had a little bit of relaxed muscle um, and you were feeling a little bit out of shape. And this afternoon, you went home, and for whatever reason, you said, I'm going to run a marathon. Okay, that's what you decide. I don't know why, but you decide to run a marathon. So how do you run a marathon? Do you wake up tomorrow morning, and do you run 26.2 miles? What would happen if you did that? You would die. Yeah, <laughs> you, you would die. There's no arguing about it. You would die. 
What if you tried really hard? You know, what if you got Ken Willis to rub your shoulders, give you a few running tips, and, you know, get one of the pastors to anoint you in oil, uh, or whatever it might be? You know, what if you just tried hard? What would happen if you tried to run a marathon? You would still die. That's the reality. You would still die. So how do you run a marathon? Well, what I'm told <laughs> is, is you, uh, you wake up, you wake up tomorrow and you run one mile. And then you wake up Tuesday and maybe you run two miles. And then you wake up Wednesday and you collapse on the floor <laughs> in a heap. But then week after week after week, you add another mile and another mile and another mile. And then six months, nine months, 12 months later, you're like running 20, 21, 22, 25, 26 miles. And through a process of practice, you become the kind of person whom run t- running 26 0.2 mile is a thing within your ability to do through practice. The problem is that's not how many of us think about our apprenticeship to Jesus. We see the end goal. We see how we think we should be and then we try really hard. It just doesn't work that way. See, practicing the way of Jesus is one day at a time. And, you know, we all have gaps. We all have a gap between, you know, who we are and who Jesus is. We all have that gap. We all have a gap between the life we currently have and the life that we long for. We have a gap between how things work now and what it is God has called us to be and do in the future. And you see, discipleship is about closing that gap. It's about becoming more and more like him through a daily practice, one foot in front of the other, taking small incremental steps. It's that process of of practice So goal one is to be with Jesus. Goal two is to become like Jesus. Goal three is to do what Jesus did. The central message of Jesus was repent. The kingdom of God is here. When we hear that word repent, it's it's kind of a loaded word. It has lots of baggage. We, We often see like angry people in suits shaking their fingers, you know, repent. But that Greek word uh, for repent is metanoia, which means to change, uh, change our mind. Uh, in the New Testament, the word metanoia often translated repentance, um, but it's a kind of repentance that's not about regret or guilt or shame, but actually a repentance about making a decision to turn around, to, to face a new direction. That's what that word repent means. Another expression of that would be to reorder ourselves, to reorder our lives. 
and seeks to reorder our lives around a brand new reality. Repent, the kingdom of God is here. Uh, And so the reality of God's kingdom, his rule and reign, is uh, where the power of his presence is. We're we're called as, as disciples to orientate our lives around that. So Jesus calls us to repent, to to reorder our entire lives around him and the work of his kingdom. You know, that that announcement of the kingdom was Jesus' life's work. And And he announced the kingdom and then he demonstrated it. And he demonstrated it in loads of different ways. And you see, as disciples of Jesus, if we're meant to do what we see our rabbi doing, then we're meant to be men and women who demonstrate his kingdom. I've got 10 things to get you started, okay? 10 things that Jesus did to demonstrate his kingdom. Preach the gospel. He taught the way of Jesus. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He he did justice. He ate and drank with people far from God. That sounds like a good one. He prayed. He prophesied. He He stood up against religious hypocrisy and pride. He spoke truth to political powers. There's your first 10, okay? And so you're thinking, oh boy, how am I meant to do that? But that's the goal. We're learning to do what Jesus did. Now, before you start panicking, imagine that you were an apprentice plumber or an apprentice electrician. And... um, you knew that for the next three years, you're going to have to learn a whole bunch of things before you can become a plumber. And, and so, therefore, for the next three years, you're not just going to learn about plumbing. You're not just going to learn lots of facts about plumbing. But actually, for the next three years, you're going to do a whole bunch of things till eventually you can plumb, if that's a verb. Um, Um, that you can be a plumber. That's the goal. So what if we were to apply those same rules to following Jesus, to being an apprentice of Jesus? Your goal for the next year, two years, three years, four years, decade, four decades, is not just to know a bunch of stuff about Jesus, but it's actually to be the kind of person who does the things that Jesus did. You know, what would, you, what would Jesus do if he was living your life? That's a really good question to ask. And so as we come into land, just a few thoughts. I don't know if you noticed Jesus' invitation uh, to become his disciple um, or to become his apprentice wasn't an invitation to become a Christian. Um, it, it, it doesn't say doesn't say that anywhere. As we, you know, particularly as you read the book of Mark, you'll see there are kind of two categories of people in the scriptures. There are the disciples, and then there's the crowds. Disciples, crowds. And, 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 and in our modern context, we kind of have added a third category, um, which, which we call Christian. And um, I don't know if you know that word Christian is only used two or three times in the scriptures. And um, when it's used, it's a derogatory term. Um, But the word disciple 
is used 268 times uh, in, the, in the New Testament. Jesus refers to his followers as disciples. And whilst we could say, oh, Steve, you're just playing with semantics, you're just, you know, you're just playing with words, what's kind of happened is that we've created a kind of culture, if you like, where it's okay to be a Christian, it's okay to say, I'm a Christian, and, and to be morally well-behaved, and to turn up to church and to give a little, to serve a little, and, and do all those things. It's, it's okay to call yourself a Christian and not be a disciple. And you see, that isn't what the Scriptures call us to. Jesus never said, come and be a Christian. He said, come, follow me. Come, be my disciple. I want to finish with the, uh, the philosopher Dallas Willard again. I should have said that this message was brought to you by Dallas Willard. But um, I just want to finish with this quote from Dallas Willard. He says, The greatest issue facing the world today, with all its heartbreaking needs, is whether those who, by profession or culture, are identified as Christian will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of heaven in every corner of human existence.